but uh, to really pay attention to it while it is being read. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, beginning in Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. We're going to take it all the way down to chapter 10, verse 29. Listen very carefully to God's word. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. For by now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence and you would have been cut off from the earth. But for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. You are still exalting yourself against my people and will not let them go. Behold, about this time tomorrow, I will cause very heavy hail to fall, such as never has been in Egypt from the day it was founded until now. Now, therefore, send, get your livestock and all that you have in the field into safe shelter. For every man and beast that is in the field and is not brought home will die when the hail falls on them. Then whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the, his, the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven so that they, there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man and beast and every plant of the field in the land of Egypt. Then Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire ran down to the earth. And the Lord rained hail upon the land of Egypt. There was hail and fire flashing continually in the midst of the hail, very heavy hail, such as had never been in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. The hail struck down everything that was in the field in all the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And the hail struck down every plant of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the people of Israel were, was there no hail. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to them, This time I have sinned. The Lord is in the right, and I and my people are in the wrong. Plead with the Lord, for there has been enough of God's thunder and hail. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. Moses said to him, As I have gone out of the city, as soon as I have gone out of the city, I will stretch out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you do not yet fear the Lord. The flax and the barley were struck down, and the barley was in the ear, and the flax was in the bud. But the wheat and the emmer were not struck down, for they are late in coming up. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and stretched out his hand to the Lord, and the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain no longer poured upon the earth. But when Pharaoh saw that the rain and hail and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet again and hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hardened, and he did not let the people of Israel go, just as the Lord had spoken through Moses. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh, for I have hardened his heart and the heart of his servants, that I may show these signs of mine among them, and that you may tell in the hearing of your son and of your grandson how I have dealt harshly with the Egyptians and what signs I have done among them, that you may know that I am the Lord. So Moses and Aaron went into Pharaoh and said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me? Let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow I will bring locusts into your country, and they shall cover the face of the land so that no one can see the land, and they shall eat what is left to you after the hail, and they shall eat 
every tree of yours that grows in the field, and they shall fill your houses and the houses of all your servants and of all the Egyptians as neither your fathers nor your grandfathers have seen from the day they came on earth to this day. Then he turned out, turned and went out from Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh's servants said to him, How long shall this man be a snare to us? Let the men go, that they may serve the Lord their God. Do you not yet understand that Egypt is ruined? So Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh, and he said to them, Go, serve the Lord your God. But which ones are to go? Moses said, We will go with our young and our old. We will go with our sons and daughters and with our flocks and herds, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. But he said to them, The Lord be with you if I ever let you and your little ones go. Look, you have some evil purpose in mind. No! Go, the men among you, and serve the Lord. For that is what you are asking. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the land of Egypt for the locusts so that they may come upon the land of Egypt, eat every plant in the land, all that the hail has left. So Moses stretched out his hand over the land of Egypt and the Lord brought an east wind upon the land all that day and all that night. When it was morning, the east wind had brought the locusts. The locusts came up over all the land of Egypt and settled on the whole country of Egypt. Such a dense swarm of locusts as had never been before nor ever will be again. They covered the face of the whole land so that the land was darkened. And they ate all the plants in the land and all the fruits, fruit of the trees that the hail had left. Not a green thing remained, neither, plant, neither tree nor plant of the field through all the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh hastily called Moses and Aaron and said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now, therefore, forgive my sin, please, only this once, and plead with the Lord your God only to remove this death from me. So he went out from Pharaoh and pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord turned the wind into a very strong west wind, which lifted the locusts and drove them into the Red Sea. Not a single locust was left in the country of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the people of Israel go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you, only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, you must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face, you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. May God bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. These days, it seems everyone is talking about a culture of 
fear, whether that is from Twitter or the television. We fret about extreme weather and pandemics and political turmoil. In the constant drip of a 24-hour news cycle, we are flooded with more causes to worry than ever before. Uh, We're worried that we're eating too much fat, and sometimes we're worried that we're eating not enough good fat, whatever that is. We're worried that our masks don't produce enough of a seal, and sometimes we're worried that our masks produce too much of a seal. We fear or parents fear, school curriculums. And some purchase guns so that they would have no one to fear. And the paradox is that we live more safely than ever before. From seatbelts and airbags in our cars to the removal of lead paint and asbestos in our homes, our safety is guarded more than ever in, ever before than our short-lived ancestors. So why are we so fearful. In his book, How Fear Works, Professor Frank Ferretti writes, why Americans fear more than more when they have far less to fear than in other moments in the past is a question that puzzles numerous scholars. And his conclusion is really interesting because this professor is not a Christian, but he writes this. He says, our inability to deal with fear is due to moral confusion in society. I would say his analysis has not gone deep enough. Moral confusion is a consequence of prior loss. The loss of the fear of God. When it comes to the Bible, the picture of the fear of God can seem confusing because we look at certain passages like 1 John 4.18 and says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. And yet in Scripture, we are called to fear, specifically to fear God. Proverbs 9.10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. David prays, teach me your ways, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth and unite my heart to what? You know it, fear my name, fear your name. Mary, the mother of Jesus, says the Lord's mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. In fact, the fear of God is so important a theme in Scripture that theologian John Murray says that the fear of God is the soul of godliness. Martin Luther himself taught we are to fear, love, and trust God above all things. So how are we to understand the fear of the Lord? What does it look like to fear the Lord? Is this simply some kind of gloomy understanding of God that kind of like, dampens the love of God somehow? Well, in our passage this morning, we come face to face with this uncomfortable truth concerning the fear of God. And it points us in the direction of rightly thinking and feeling and responding to this fearsome God that we see in Exodus. So if you haven't already, we are in Exodus chapter 9. Turn in your Bibles there to Exodus 9, verse 13. This morning, we are in the last triad of, of the plagues, plagues 7, 8, and 9 of hail and locusts and darkness. And through the first six plagues, we've seen that God is a God of judgment and power. 
He is a God of distinction and protection. These plagues are coming in increased severity, but now they're no mere nuisances. It's not just painful sores, but life is at stake at this point. It's life-threatening, and things are taking a turn for the worse. And through it all, God is making a case. Through these plagues, God is making a case that God is God and there is no other. Fear him. He is a God to be feared. So three points for you this morning, if you're jotting down notes. First one, the first thing we ought to observe, the first thing we see the word calling us to is to fear God and listen to him. It's to fear God and listen to him. Look at verses, this first plague of, of hail here. Uh, this hailstorm poses a serious threat. To us in California, hail is kind of one of those things where when, when it comes, we, we want to go outside. <laughs> we want to experience it. We're like, hail, fun. But not for this agricultural society in Egypt. To them, it was a threat to their income, their food source, their economy. Because hail can be extremely violent. In 1984, a single hailstorm killed or injured 400 people in Germany. In 2002, another hailstorm killed 22 people in China's Henan province. According to the Guinness Book of World World Records, the largest hailstones were two and a quarter pounds each. Two pounds, 2.25 pounds each, which fell on Bangladesh in 1986, killing 92 people. So imagine a ball of ice, maybe seven times heavier than a baseball, hurling down from the skies at a nearly 110 miles an hour. And you can understand how a forecast of cloudy with a 100% chance of hail would be deadly for these Egyptians. This is no ordinary hail. It threatens the lives of animals and field workers and the plants with its ferocity. This torrential hail happens in all the land of Egypt, except, of course, in Goshen, where the Israelites dwelt. Now, why did this, this plague fall upon Egypt? God says in verse 14, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. God is not just another God in the pantheon of gods. There is none like him. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind can comprehend the love and the glory and the majesty of this God. And God goes on to say in verse 15 and 16, By now I could have put out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence. You would have been cut off from the earth, dead. But for this purpose, I've raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. And God is saying, you know what, Pharaoh? I could have wiped you out like that with the snap of my fingers. Easy. You tried to step in the ring with me, but you know what? You're, you're not even a contender. You're trying to throw these jabs and, and swing these hooks, but you just look foolish. I could have wiped the floor with you, but I haven't. I have stood you up. I've kept you against the ropes. Not for just simply 
allowing these people freedom. Not simply just so that I could bring justice upon you, but there's something more coming up. My power will be put on display. My name will be proclaimed. That is what God is saying. And Paul picks up this sense here in Romans 9, actually, in the New Testament, talking about God's election and predestination. Romans 9, 16 and 17 says, So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And then what does Paul do? He quotes Exodus 9, 16. In other words, Paul is looking on this episode of these plagues that are falling upon Egypt and upon the life of Pharaoh. And he says, see the power of God's electing and predestining will. You see, this is the life-altering, pride-shattering, soul-freeing message of God's power and sovereignty. God is orchestrating this whole glorious mess of the universe for the praise of his name because the world is not about you. The world does not revolve around you. It is about God's grace and mercy. Pharaoh was an instrument in the hand of God to write large across this world that he is God and he is a God to be feared. And the hail does come. Psalm 105 describes it this way. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. And you see in verse 20, the use of the term fear of the Lord. This is the first time the phrase is actually in scripture here in Exodus 9. Exodus 9.20, then whoever feared the Lord will... Whoever feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh hurried his slaves and his livestock into the houses. But whoever did not pay attention to the word of the Lord left his slaves and his livestock in the field. Did you see that? Did you see that? Blink and you'll kind of miss it. What is the opposite of fearing the Lord? Is it that you hate God and then you shake your fist and you're like, God, whatever, strike me down. I'm not afraid of you. Is that what it is? That's not what it says here. The opposite of the fear of the Lord is what? Not paying attention. This isn't just that your mind starts wandering, Pastor Steve preaches. It's not that. We certainly do live in a world of distraction, don't we? We can barely remember the time when We could have a conversation with someone without having them look at their phones or secretly look at their watches, you know, which is attached to their phones. Or at least those are the conversations I have with people. You can travel to Horseshoe Bend, to Yosemite, to the Grand Canyon, this wide expanse of glory. And our greatest concern is, do we have reception? You sit at your table to do homework or the piano bench to practice and... There are always nudges, bells, dings, saying, you've got mail. You've got mail. Be distracted. See what news is coming up about the Olympics. See what's the latest scandal. But this is even worse. This is a distraction of the soul. 
a disease of conscience, a distrust of the heart. To fear the Lord is to listen to him, to hear his word, believe and obey. To not fear the Lord is to hear it and pay no attention. To disdain him, to go on living your way. And that's what some of the Egyptians do. They simply go on doing what they were doing. They were like, well, let's keep on grazing our animals. The clouds are coming, but let's keep on doing it. Why miss a day of work? Fear says there is a God and he's not to be trifled with. And when he speaks, listen. Well, we're told of the severity of the hail and the harvest in verses 31 and 32. It tells us that the land is smashed and that, that it was a particular time. It was harvest time and it's all blown apart by the sheer force of the tempest. And once again, Pharaoh cries out for relief. And here are some actually really frightening verses because he seemingly expresses true repentance. He says all the right words. He said, I've sinned. The Lord is in the right, but the fear of the Lord involves more than merely a desire for the circumstances to go away, to remove unpleasant circumstances. Pharaoh was not truly paying attention. He was not listening. Moses says in verse 30, But as for you and your servants, I know that what? You do not yet fear the Lord. Pharaoh once again hardens his heart. And this leads us into our second point this morning. Fear God and repent. In light of who God is, we ought to fear God and listen to him. And second, we ought to fear God and repent. In chapter 10, Moses again presents God's demands to Pharaoh, and it's very simple. Let the, people free, let the people go so that they could serve him. And God's threat is very simple too. If you don't, locusts are coming upon the land. Now, the land of Egypt has already lost any semblance of normal life. It has been devastated already. And now it will be devastated by a swarm of locusts. Think about this. The early crops that they already had have already been smashed. The livestock is meager. They've already been killed, or a large portion of them. So with the thought of locusts eating and ravaging anything left that is green in their fields, any vegetation left, you know what that would mean for Egypt? Famine. We can scarcely imagine in our cultural context just how bad locusts can be. In the 1920s and 30s, locusts swept across Africa and wiped out 5 million square miles. That's an area almost double the size of the United States. In 1988, the Chicago Tribune reports that billions of locusts are moving across North Africa, blotting out the sun and settling on the land like a black ravenous carpet to strip it clean of vegetation. In 2001, the Times in London reported a locust invasion in Asia where there were up to 10,000 locusts per 10, per 10 square feet in a swarm of billions. These descriptions help explain what would happen to Egypt. God's warning of a darkened sky and a land covered with locusts. This isn't an exaggeration. It's why when the plague does fall upon the land, Pharaoh doesn't say, oh, remove these locusts. He says he calls these locusts a death in verse 17. 
And yet even with God's warning, even when with God coming with plague after plague, Pharaoh does not relent and Pharaoh does not repent. Even Pharaoh's servants plead with them, how long shall this man be a snare to us in chapter 10, verse 7? You know, Pharaoh, wake up. You're fighting a losing battle. Your, your empire is being destroyed. Just let them go. But what does Pharaoh do? Does he repent? Instead of repenting, he starts bargaining, doesn't he? He starts bargaining. We saw that earlier in the plague of flies. We see it again later in the plague of darkness. Pharaoh bargains. He's sending up bid after bid like he's playing eBay with God. Go, but not too far. Go, but only go with the men. Go, but not your possessions, not your livestock. You see, Pharaoh knew God's demands. He knew that he was supposed to let all of God's people go. He knew that the purpose of the Exodus is that Israel would go out and worship their Lord, their worship God. Pharaoh knew all this and yet refused to give it all over to God. Pharaoh was always holding something back. By insisting on his right to hold on to the women and children or the livestock, he was refusing to give up his sovereignty. He wanted to deal with God on his own terms. He said, I'm going to do it my way. Like Pharaoh, many people bargain with God, trying always to get God to lower his terms. I'll be a Christian as long as I don't have to go to church. I'll go to church as long as I don't have to get baptized. I'll get baptized as long as I don't have to get involved. Okay, fine. I'll get involved as long as it doesn't touch my money. This is like that classic illustration that we've probably heard time and time again where we invite God into our lives, but we invite him to our front porch. We don't want him in our family room. We don't want him in our office. We don't want him in our bedrooms. But Moses would have none of it. Moses understood that with God, it is all or nothing. Moses says in verse 26, what? Not a hoof shall be left behind. I love that turn of phrase. Not a hoof will be left behind. Well, what happens next is completely predictable. The plague comes. Pharaoh once again offers up a half-hearted repentance. Verse 16 says he hastily calls Moses in. Again, he confesses, I've sinned against the Lord your God, against you. Forgive my sin. Once again, Pharaoh admits his wrongdoing. But Pharaoh doesn't confess his sin to God himself. Again, he's still more worried about the consequences of his sin than about the sin itself. His confession is a matter of practical expediency. It is not a deep spiritual conviction. You might think, oh, Pharaoh, he's getting close. But he hasn't budged. Like a lot of people, when he gets into a real bind, he wants somebody to pray for him. Oh, I'm, I'm sick or I lost my job and life isn't going as planned. And as, in a sense, it's a form of trying to manipulate God. Another way of getting what he wanted. But there's an eternal difference between regret and repentance, between remorse and real spirit-led contrition. You want to know whether your repentance is genuine? See what happens after you've said, please forgive me. This isn't to say that after you ask for forgiveness, you really got to prove it to God for the rest of your life. And it isn't to say that your repentance somehow needs to be perfect 
because, all, because our faith is imperfect. We understand that, is that our repentance can be imperfect. But there is a difference between weak repentance and a half-hearted, bargaining, compromised repentance. Repentance is more than a repeated apology. Forgive me, forgive me. If it's just a repeated apology, Pharaoh would be in heaven. You can want relief from affliction without wanting reconciliation with God. You can recognize your sin without truly repenting of it. Repentance is not merely acknowledging your sin. Repentance is forsaking your sin and embracing God. It's easy to want the consequences of your sin to stop. The question is whether you're willing to forsake your sin, whatever the consequences. Do you fear God and repent? Does your repentance at all parallel what Pharaoh is doing here, beloved? Something bad happens, you acknowledge something's wrong, but then when things kind of clear up, your heart just springs back to its original shape. Beloved, beware of, of repenting under duress. If you only repent under duress, you might not be repenting at all. First, fear God and listen. Second, fear God and repent. Third and last, fear God and rejoice. Fear God and rejoice. This might seem like a strange paradox, but stick with me to the end of this plague. In this ninth plague, God plunges Egypt with pitch darkness in the land. And for three whole days, no one could see anything. Now, at first, when I read this, I was like, kind of anticlimactic, God. I mean, I've read this a long, many times before, but I read it again. And I was like, darkness? That's all you got? Frogs, boils, hail, come on. But to fully appreciate this plague, we must understand how ominously darkness threatened ancient people. These days, we take for granted we have light. I mean, we carry it with us in our phones, right? We flip a switch and the light comes on. Even if everything's dark, there's ambient light around us. But these are times when people would be virtually immobilized by darkness. At night when, was when everyone barred their doors and locked their gates because this was, at night was a time of of when thieves would come and criminals would, people would fall prey to criminals and nighttime was a time of chaos and lawlessness. You were disoriented and lost. And notice that this plague was not some ordinary darkness. It says that it, it is darkness to be felt. It's an oppressive kind of darkness. It says people, that the people don't, can't, they can't see each other. Doesn't it say that? And they don't even attempt to leave their homes. So it's as if God had somehow turned off the sun, moon, and stars and for three days. Pitch darkness. It's as if when they struck the match to light the candle, it might provide warmth, but there was no light. It was a supernatural darkness. Oppressive and fearful where people groped and felt their way around for three days. But it is more than just psychological warfare here. This is theological warfare. As we've seen through all the other plagues, God has been demonstrating that he alone is God and the Egyptian gods are nothing. So we saw some of these through the previous plagues, plagues of how God is just, just breezing through all this pantheon of Egyptian gods. Uh, Hopi of the Nile, Heket of the frog goddess, uh, uh, 
Skemet, the, the goddess with power over disease, Nut, the sky goddess. And now for the penultimate plague, we see the chief god of them all, Ra or Amon-Ra. Pharaoh himself was regarded as the personal embodiment of the sun god, Ra. And what does God do? He eclipses him in a moment. He shuts the sun off like you and I would turn off the light switch in our homes. This is complete and comprehensive defeat. But there is more that is being said here. Throughout the plagues, we have seen God, the God of creation, ruining Egypt with one act of decreation after another. It's really fascinating the words that are being used in these plagues because the parallels with Genesis are right there for us to see. God is undoing what he had done in the garden. When God created the world, the water swam with creatures of the sea, but with plagues one and two, it ended with the death of fish and frogs. When God created the world, he made animals, but in plagues three through five, plagues, he afflicted the beasts and with pestilence and disease. When God created the world, he made vegetation grow on the land. But in the seventh and eighth plagues, he destroys it. And when God created the world, what did he do? He separated light from darkness and he put two lights in the sky, in the heavens. But here light is blotted out. And soon we will come to the climax of this decreation. For what was the climax of God's creation in the garden but the creation of man? And it will be fitting that the tenth and final plague in this act of decreation is to kill these image bearers in the land. And yet, the meaning of darkness runs deeper still. More than just God's victory over idols, more than that he is the power, he is the God of creation. In the Bible, darkness signifies sin and God's judgment, a sign of God's abandonment. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness, they do not know what, over what they stumble. Matthew 8, 12, Jesus says judgment comes with being thrown into outer darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Revelation 16 tells us that at the end of the age, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. People will gnaw their tongues in anguish and yet they will refuse to repent in this worldwide oppressive darkness. So these Egyptian plagues are merely a foretaste of the final judgment that is to come. So fear God. And yet, rejoice. If this was all that God was, if we have every right to be fearful of him, his, it, it would, we, we, we would be in the right place to fear him. His power, his might, he is hazardous. God is hazardous, dangerous, but he is also glorious. Think about this because there is something wonderful about this God that will not let us curve in on ourselves, but pulls our focus up and away from ourselves. There's something gracious with the God who says, I will topple all your idols. I will faithfully systematically topple the idols in your life one at a time. There's something merciful with God 
who will do whatever is necessary to soften our hearts that we might listen to him, to trust in him alone. God will disorder what we have ordered to bring glory to ourselves every single time. What he did with Babel, he will do with you. What he did with Pharaoh, he will do with you, and it will be an act of mercy and love to you. If it's money or relationships, appearance, whatever, addictions that we might have, wherever you have to place your, wherever you might be placing yourself on the throne, God will tear it down. And for this, we can fear God and rejoice. But there's more. I know I keep saying there's more, but this is it. We rejoice because this fearsome God withdrew his light in judgment and abandoned his son so that we would never be. God sent his son, very God of very God, to live a perfect life and be crucified. And there on the cross, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, what happens? Darkness fell on the land. And Jesus on the cross cries out, right? Meaning, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness on the Son of God. Judgment and forsakenness and abandonment fell upon Christ. Christ died upon the cross and he faced darkness when he died for three days, only to rise again to new life. So that all who would listen, all who would repent, all who would trust in, in Christ would be called out of darkness and into marvelous light. No more judgment, not to be forsaken, not to be abandoned, but accepted, forgiven, adopted into the family of God. So church, let us fear God and rejoice. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for you are, for yes, you are a fearsome God, full of fearsome power. You are the God of creation. And we quake and we tremble before you. But we can do so with joy because we know that you are for us. We can do so with joy because we know that you are not merely the God of creation, but you are our Father. And that because of your grace, we can call you Abba, Father, and cry out to you. And so, God, we pray for us as a church that you would instill in us a proper understanding of who you are, that we may tell others of this great news of this fearsome, glorious, and joyful God. We pray this in Jesus' name.